Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Thank you once again, Casper Mattresses, for sponsoring this podcast. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home or if you want in someone else's home if you ship it to them. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash james and using offer code James, terms and conditions apply. FreshBooks is the ridiculously easy to use cloud accounting software that's made for people like you and me who can't stand doing their taxes because FreshBooks keeps all of your cash flow details in one place so you know exactly what invoices you sent, who's paid you, and what your income is. And their mobile app allows you to take pictures of your receipts and organize them for later, which makes claiming expenses a total breeze. So for a 30-day free trial, just go to freshbooks.com forward slash James and enter the code James in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Today on the James Altucher Show. So I was early on a sniper. As a new guy, our platoon of 16 needed two snipers. So our chief one day comes to myself and Glenn Doherty said, hey, you guys are going to go to sniper school. So we were new guys and new guys didn't get that opportunity. So we were excited but terrified. Obviously, I don't want to learn how to be a sniper during this podcast. It's not going to happen. But really, I want to, um, you know, you have this great quote. The point of your school was not just to make everybody masters of shooting, but make them masters of their own fate. And I feel that's what this podcast is about. I wanted to give people the uncomfortable look behind the curtain on on what it's really like to take another person's life. What is war like? And, you know, what's it like when my friend uh, Alex in the book shoots a, a bad guy in Afghanistan and watches in this village as his 13-year-old son runs out to save his dad. And then he comes back and deals with that because he has his, his own son who's 13 and like broke down after the, after the mission. I belong to this entrepreneur's organization and we were going around the, our forum and they were asking if, if you had a miracle, what would that look like? When it got to me, I said, a miracle to me would be world peace, like no more killing each other. Brandon Webb, you maggot piece of shit. <laughs> what makes you think you're good enough to come on this podcast, you <laughs> dirty piece of slime? Get down and do 50 push-ups. No, sorry, 5,000 push-ups. 
five thousand would yeah, five thousand would take a while. So, so I always wanted to act just once in my life, like an <laughs> army sergeant in boot camp. Is that like, did I do a, an okay job? Can you? Yeah, no, that wasn't too bad. Well, um, could you you do it now. Um, let me think. I have to get put myself in Bud's instructor. Yeah, mode. so imagine I'm um, I'm just behind everybody, and I'm like, it looks like I'm gasping for air. Yeah. So I would I like to get in people's head. I, I did a instructor swap for Hell Week. They recruit guys to come and work this period at, in SEAL training where we keep the guys up for five and a half days straight. So we work three eight hour shifts, and uh, I like to get in their head. So I would come up to you very quietly and go, James. You made my list, and you would like kind of look at me and imagine like you're eating wet, right? I'm spraying you down with with a hose and cold water, and you're watching. We make the students watch the sun go down, and I would say you made the list. It's going to be a long fucking night for you, so I just need you to think about that as you watch the sun go down. So I would get in their head and and just just mess with them quietly. So I was I was more like the psychological, like put pressure on in that way. It reminds me of a saying from the chess playing world. Shows my geeky roots, but uh, the 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 saying is the threat is stronger than the execution. So when you when you get in their head and give them more possibilities to think about, even though you know what's what you're going to do next, then that makes it harder for them to make their next decision. Yeah, I had literally done exactly what I just described, um, and one of the master chief uh, master chief Philpot, his son was going through SEAL training, and I, I didn't realize his son was one of the one of the Guys, I just went up to. I looked at the, you know, scanning the class, and you just kind of look for weakness. Who's kind of on the, you know, not all the all present. And I went probably to twelve guys, and six of them quit before the fourth the meal, even so, finished. Like just sitting there, we, I hadn't even touched them or laid a hand on them. I, you know, I want to. I'm, I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But first, let me do a little intro. Uh, Brandon Webb, your author of uh, the Killing School, um, because you basically taught the School of Snipers, which among other people who graduated was uh, Chris Kyle, who is the movie American Sniper is about. You um, wrote an excellent memoir called uh, The Red Circle, which I've read. And um, I, I want to uh, go into that a little bit as well. That was a New York Times bestseller, correct? Yep. And, um, and this one, The Killing School, is guaranteed, guaranteed to be a New York Times bestseller. It's a great book. And um, there's a lot of things I want to... Go over. So let, let me let me. I don't normally do this. Let me go down the table of contents of what <laughs> okay. I want to cover. Let's do it. So so I want to cover essentially your thoughts on war and Iraq because this is this is always. I have an eighteen year old daughter, and you couldn't put a gun to my head and give me twenty million dollars and say send your kid to war. I would just never do it, and I would, you know, hold her down before she got on a plane to war. Um, and so we can go over that because yeah. I know you have varying opinions on that, uh, and and also the whole issue of teaching people to kill people. I just that's almost like the elephant in the room for 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 me. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to go through the arc of your career. You were one of the first people in Afghanistan after nine eleven. Then one of the then uh, you had another deployment in Iraq. I kind of want to you know discuss your own ups and downs, and then kind of returning uh, from from war. To to uh, you know face a conflicted America and how you built a career around that and 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 your current career, most importantly, and we'll, so we'll get to it fairly quickly. I I don't obviously I don't want to learn how to be a sniper during this podcast. It's not going to happen. Although 
I did take rifle shooting lessons a few weeks ago on, on 20th Street uh, or 21st Street, one of those streets. And um, But I want to talk about peak performance, which I feel your book is really, both your books, Red Circle and Killing School, are really about, and particularly your sections on, on mental management and the story of... Um, uh, the the guy Sands, who was a, a you know a POW for many years yep. in Vietnam, and and how he got through it. Uh, but but really, I want to um, you know you have this great quote. Uh, the point of your school was not just to make everybody masters of being you know shooting, but make them masters of their own fate. And I feel that's what this podcast is about more than you know just kind of learning your specific skill uh, that you learn. And then. Um, that's my table of contents for yeah, for this podcast. Good. So 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 before we get into the guts of the killing school war, what is it good for? Uh, you know, you you obviously were into it. You know, from an early age, you were you know you you were ready to go. <laughs> uh, uh, you know what's what what's the deal? Like, when is it called for? Why teach people to to kill? What what's going on? Yeah, I mean, so you know, in many ways. As we were talking earlier, I'm I'm anti-war. I, I think war is is a terrible thing. Um, I do, unfortunately, and, and I, I, as a guy that's been out for a few years now, and you know, built a business and run a business for ten years, you know, I've had a chance to reflect, and it's just sad. It saddens me that I can live in a beautiful city like New York with the arts and all this this creativity. And think that we're still not evolved enough that we're killing each other with hacking each other to death in North Africa and dropping bombs and shooting each other with lead bullets. It's just barbaric. And for how, how far we've come as a society, it's it's sad that that there's parts of the world where that still happens. And there's you know, there's environments that produce these terrible evil people that and, and that's the the catch twenty two, right? It's like it's like the schoolyard bully. Like if no one's willing to stand up to the bully, and people do bad things. You look back to World War Two and, and Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust and how terrible that was. Um, so I I do still think that war serves a purpose. Um, as much as I I think it's terrible and and I wish that we I mean I I belong to this entrepreneurs organization and. We were going around the our forum, and they were asking if if you had a miracle, and and woke up one day, what would that look like? And to me, I when it got to me, I said I would a miracle to me would be world peace, like no more killing each other. We're working to advance uh, society. Um, but let me ask let me ask you about that. Like let's sure. just take Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, Obviously ruled by what we consider to be evil people, and they were. I mean, nine eleven was the, the worst travesty on American soil ever. And and I lived. I don't know where where you were at the, on that exact day, but I had breakfast at the World Trade Center that morning and was just yeah. walking up with my business partner. And we saw the plane flying right overhead. Every everybody kind of instinctively ducked, even though it was six hundred feet higher. And my mind almost went into denial. I'm like, oh, the. I, I even said out loud, like, oh, that plane must be empty because we watched the plane go right into the building. Yeah. And I said, oh, even though it was like a quarter to nine, I said, oh, nobody's in, it's too early. Nobody's in the world. Like my mind went into this weird denial and my yeah. business partner kept saying, no, we're under attack. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, that's impossible. And then of course we saw the second plane go in and then it, then the Pentagon and it started to to connect. But, uh, uh, you know, to some extent, look, we... We fuel, we 
armed Osama bin Laden when they were fighting the Soviets. You know, we trained Al-Qaeda and I'm not justifying anything. I'm saying, why should we have gotten involved even in the beginning, 15 years earlier? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I think looking back over the past, I mean, 50 years, we've done, we, America has kind of lost its course, especially in, in my opinion and from a foreign policy strategy point of view. I mean, s- strategies should be easily understood from the top down. And I, you could go out on the street right now and ask people, what is our foreign policy strategy, like America's foreign policy strategy in the world? And I think you'd get a different answer from from everybody. Cause, well, what do you think our strategy knows. is? Um, I, I think we don't have a strategy. It's one of the big... I, I was critical of both the Bush administration and Obama for really creating more instability in the world. And, and, and that's what we've done. We look at the situation you explained with Osama bin Laden. Like we armed and trained those guys when they were f- to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. And the Soviets don't exist and Al-Qaeda now bombs us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we, and the irony there is now you look at the, the conflict in the Middle East. Like we've, we essentially created um, this uh, instability in Iraq, created a, a situation where an organization like ISIS can emerge. Right, and now and, Iran could, could become, because Iraq was always the buffer against Iran, yeah. now it's a un, completely unstable situation in the Middle East. And by the way, once again, we're the ones who armed Iraq to fight Iran in the first place. Now, now you have a civil war in Syria. Now we're... we're you know, I remember watching Senator John McCain go over the, to the Middle East, and he's like, "Yeah, we need to arm these these rebels." I'm like, "This is before like ISIS kind of came into the forefront," and we're you know we're running our small news site uh, at Safra.com, and we had guys over on the ground in Syria. I'm like, "Wait a minute, those rebels that you want to arm are actually." Like some of them are terrorists and some of them are ISIS. Well, and, I and so think we're like repeating the same process. I all think there's over still again. confusion as to who's a peaceful rebel and who's ISIS. And, you know, and then of course we were once on Assad's side. Now, I think the average American has zero clue what is happening in Syria. We have no idea who is on what side, which side ISIS is on, who the bad guys are. They're all bad guys in, in Syria. So what? the heck are we doing? And, We're just making everyone hate us. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at it from from that point of view and, and assign like some KPIs, perf- like performance indicators, since 9-11, we have made the world a more unstable, dangerous place. And people probably, especially in the Muslim world, we've created m- many more enemies than we had pre-9-11. And so that that just doesn't go a long way towards promoting stability and, and peace in the world. And, that, and that's a big problem where I, I see... And one of the reasons I I believe in writing books and telling the stories from the guys that have been there, because I come back and I meet with, I, I have a friend who's a congressman, and he's a, he's a combat vet, but I've met a lot of these politicians, and they, they're quick to like light the torch and, and you know beat the war drums. And I'm like, wait a minute, you don't have a clear understanding of the reality and ugliness of war. So well, Why don't you set up a, um, I'm just throwing out a random idea, sorry if I do this. <laughs> telling you what to do with your career now. <laughs> uh, why don't you set up kind of a coaching company to coach these congressmen about what's really going on there? Because well, I feel like they don't know. 
and yeah. and they're not really they don't really have high IQs. So it's almost I not that's not true for all of them. Some I've met some congressmen who are incredibly intelligent, but like I think I feel like a lot of them don't even have the basic bullet points that they understand about the situation on the ground there. They're just taking orders from their leadership, yeah. which is which is being driven by polling as opposed to policy. It's so that's a good question and it's it's interesting because I um Back when I, I lost my first business and I was working for L3, um, trying to figure out what I what I wanted to do next, and I ended up running a blog for military.com, and that did very well. And I said, I'm going to start my own spec ops site because there's all this interest on the internet around the world of special ops. Started the website, Softrep, and it was originally about information about the community and a little bit of community news. And when I recruited writers, all all of a sudden it turned into a news site within four months because guys were reading stuff in the journal, the Post, the Times, and they're saying, wait a minute, that's not what's happening over there. And so my writers, who are all special ops, combat vets, some of them working for the CIA, started to write op-ed pieces, and then they started, some of them started breaking news because they cared about the world. And, and so... That's kind of my coaching company. It's we can now like you know, SoftRep has a has a million visitor, visitors a month, and I know we've triggered several congressional investigations into into um, potential war crimes in different units. Um, so I feel like we are getting the word out and and trying to hold this apolitical uh, line with the the work that we do. But we have a guy right now in the Philippines looking at. You know what's happening in, down there with the terrorists. We've had we have had a guy in, in Iraq, Syria. Right. So this is this is valuable, right? Like so, you yeah. could basically go to foreign governments and charge millions to kind of you know consult with their leaders, or you can you can have a sales guy who simply calls up the legislative assistant of every congressman and say, "Listen, sit down for a half hour hour with us." Yeah. Not even the congressman, just the legislative assistant. We'll explain to you what we can do, and then we'll need five hours a month from the congressman and it costs X. I feel yeah. like that's a good business and, and yeah. you're the only ones who can offer it or one of the few people who can offer it. Yeah. No, and it would be something to think about, but it's it's a problem that, that I see in society and in politics. These people don't have any clue on how really, really bad and ugly war is, especially on the, on the conservative side. You see a lot of hero worship around the military, and which, know, by the, the way, there should be. I mean, yeah, there, there's they, nothing. I'm wrong not with saying the military is not heroes. They're going and risking their lives for something they believe in. That's I'm uh, I'm not even taking an opposite side here. Like anybody who's willing to do that, which I am not willing to do, that is a hero in my view. Yeah, I don't want to take that away. It's more of this. Just you're a hero. Pol- <laughs> Thanks. It's more of this like polarized group in in America. Um, on the right and the left, and, and just I think there's a lack of understanding of of really um, how terrible war is, and that's why you know I would go to the parties in New York City and get asked you know what I consider inappropriate questions like how many people did you kill? Oh, exactly, like that's the first one. How many people you kill? What's it like? So I was like, you know what, I'm gonna write a book, and because people would ask me after the Red Circle, hey, we want to know more about the sniper training. So and there's a lot of value in that, like you mentioned earlier with the. The mental management and the performance, you know, personal performance stuff. But I wanted to give people the kind of, you know, the the uncomfortable look behind the curtain on on what it's really like to take another person's life. What what is war like? And you know, what's it like when my friend my friend uh, Alex in the book, 
shoots a, a bad guy in Afghanistan and watches in this village as his 13-year-old son runs out to like save his dad. And, and then he comes back and deals with that because he has his, his own son who's 13 and like broke, he broke down after the, after the mission. So it's like those kind of things where it, it shows, look, this is more, this isn't a video game. You know, it's not a movie. Like this is, this is serious stuff that we're doing. And, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from returning veterans because of things like this. But I, I but, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm a little bit of an interrupter, but we have, <laughs> we have time. We'll get through each sure. thing you want to say, I'm sure. Um, but let me play devil's advocate a little bit. Uh, on the one hand, I'm saying America just seems to, and we're both kind of agreeing, America just seems to screw things up without a consistent foreign policy. We shouldn't try to police the world. We're just engendering more hate from, let's say, the Muslim community and the Middle East and so on, and maybe many other countries. But where is there a line? Maybe there's no line, but devil's advocate, Syria, a bunch of kids get a chemical attack on them. So you have these 11-year-olds with like, you know, chemical injuries. And we, and Barack Obama drew a line in the sand saying, we're going to respond if, the, if Syria uses chemical warfare. Now here they used it on children. So uh, Donald Trump now using Obama's promise did respond. Where is the line when we say, look, that's an evil we can't tolerate. And America, as, as big and blessed as it is, uh, we have the resources to fight that evil. Where, where is the line? Should we fight that evil or should we let countries work it out themselves? I think it comes down with, if we have a clear strategy for how, what, our, what our Middle East policy is, we, the strategy would answer that question. And we don't, so we are very reactive. We're not proactive, we're reactive. But as someone who's been there and you've seen it inside and out in every possible way, What's your answer to my question? Where is the line? Is there a line? I mean, there should be absolutely a line. Interestingly, with the with the chemical weapons, when I look at the big picture, and we've studied Syria um, on our news site extensively, our editor in chief interviewed Assad uh, before Christmas, and how'd you get that? Get we got invited with the New York Times. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty. Can you get him on my podcast? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I could probably get you, at least get you a shot at it. But, you know, the Assad, when you look at it from an incentive point of view, he had no incentives to use chemical weapons. The US essentially was saying, hey, we're not, we're going to leave Assad alone and in, in power um, because we were kind of um, taking a, a neutral stance towards Russia, which I think is a smart thing to do. Russia, Syria is important to Russia strategically because they have a big naval base in Syria, just like Bahrain is important to the U.S. because we have a, a big, uh, I think it's Fifth Fleet has a big base in the, in the Gulf, uh, in the Arabian Gulf. So I just don't understand why Assad would be motivated to use chemical weapons when he knows the rest of the world is going to be polarized against him. That's what makes me question, okay, he doesn't have any incentive to do that in the first place. So who would benefit by, you know, doing a chemical weapons attack, which ISIS has done before, who would really benefit from kind of sucking the U.S. into, into that situation um, so it's just, I, I think it's- It doesn't seem like ISIS benefited though, because then we dropped that huge, the, the mega bomb on their kind of, you know, well, in Afghanistan, but it's, it's, it's Syria. And that's so, 
there's a lot of uncertainty and, and questions I still have around that. But yeah, any if there's conclusive proof that Assad used chemical weapons, I mean that that is a line in the sand. I mean it that's. But then again, we the, the philosophical question is on killing, right? Like, is it a bomb, lethal well, well, injection, a sniper's bullet? Well, well, not only a drone strike. Not only on killing, but if that's the line in the sand. Uh, then the focus should, instead of being, well, take out the specific tactical people who did that, maybe maybe you say, if that's the line in the sand, then take out Assad the same way we took out Saddam Hussein and the same way we took out the Taliban. But then you get back into nation building, which we haven't been very successful at the past 20 years. Yeah, I don't think ever we've been very (laughs) successful. Yeah, if you try to think about it, when have we... You know, everyone always says imperialist USA. When did we ever take over a country and actually successfully turn them into a kind of mini USA? Yeah, I can't think of a, a, a one example. I did want to comment too on Afghanistan. I, I felt very justified going over to Afghanistan post 9-11, you know, destroying the terrorist camps, you know, killing a lot of bad guys. And then we should have left, like, Afghanistan has turned into my generation's Vietnam for sure. Like it is Even turned worse, into where they have longer shit show. Yeah, it's just it's and it's a tragedy when I see like the these people that I was that I knew in the SEAL teams literally change and become different different people because they've been put into terrible situations over and over and over again. Um, I don't even recognize some of my friends anymore. I mean, they're, in, just, in what they're sense? just different people. It's they're. The psychology, they've just they have this like glassed over look and they've just seen too much. It's it's been too much exposure, not enough. And the special operations community, I think, has done a disservice um internally because they haven't encouraged these guys to take a break, spend time with their family, rotate into a into a staff position, which means you are based in the US, you don't deploy. Because promoting and advancing They've been promoting like, oh, this guy's a hard charger. He's not taking a break. Um, so they should have incentivized it the other way around. Like if you want to promote up and get more pay, then you need to take a break and spend time mm-hmm. with your family. Um, and and it, by the way, to your credit, you've suffered criticism from, from within the special ops community for having this opinion. And um, I had another thing to your credit, but I'll, I'll think of it in a second. Yeah, no, I've taken, I've taken a ton of criticism. Um, because I've I've said stuff like this, and and I've talked about stuff that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to hear about guys coming home and getting a, a stem cell injection so they can behave normal at the family dinner table for three months. Like, How does a stem cell injection help with that? Uh, there's some I don't know the exact um, medication, but they're injecting something. I feel like I need that for my Thanksgiving yeah, dinner. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> But there's some kind of drug they've been injecting in these guys to to basically tone them down after they cut, rotate back from deployment because they're well, just so high strung. I'm wondering why something like lithium won't do it. Like just kind of a, a kind of if you if after you've been in Afghanistan or a country like that for a dozen years, it's just automatic requirement. You know, three months of lithium just to kind of calm down and and neutralize any sort of you know, maybe latent bipolar tendencies or PTSD or whatever. Yeah, I I don't know what the answer is. I just know that we wrote an article um, on Software Up a couple weeks ago about the medics over there issuing the guys speed. And, you know, these guys are going out on two, three hits a night sometimes. Back speed to back being missions. methamphetamine or amphetamine? Meth- 
I, you know what? I I honestly don't know. I'd have to go back and look, but I I think it's some sort of some sort of amphetamine. I mean, these guys are are staying up, and then they're getting hooked on it, and then we're of kind of, and then we're casting them aside, and then of um, course casting them aside. You know the, what speed does is it hooks to the same receptors that dopamine in the brain hooks to. So if you take enough of it, you know to keep going in in these war situations, these high stress war situations, your body is going to say, "Oh, okay, I don't need to make any more dopamine. It's being supplied to me." So once they get back home, they get depressed, they get suicidal, they have no more ability to make dopamine, they get violent. Um, but I also, I now remember what I was going to say. Also, to your credit, you've built a business helping returning special ops people kind of find business opportunities for themselves and, and working either working for you or for others or, or and so on. So I think yeah. that's, a, that's a huge thing that you've done for that community. Yeah, no, we've, you know, I probably 90% of my employees are veterans. And I had a, one of the best compliments. Um, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, from my friend Matt Meeker, who's the founder of BarkBox. Matt was like, "Man, your ops guy does the work of four staff. Do you realize that? Like, I have four people to do what he does for you guys on your uh, yeah." My in my very operations. first company, my best employees, male and female, were ex-Israeli Army um, people, and um, some of my best investments out there are. I don't know why it's always Israel, but it's ex-Israeli army people because also there, it's not just that there are fighters, but at least in in Israel, there there's a lot of respect for uh, cybersecurity and cyber warfare. So I'm invested in that area as well. And, they, and those guys are the experts because they have to protect their country in a very real way. It wasn't theoretical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're just very disciplined and problem solving and they're not going to sit around if they don't know what to do, they're going to ask or or go figure it out. So, so let, let me I ask you out. another question on the devil's advocate side. And this is this is something I've tried to research, and there's so many books on it, and so many podcasts, and so many differing opinions. But it's Islam itself, and you know, of course, if you take the Old Testament and the New Testament literally, there's a lot of violence. People used it in the you know medieval ages to justify the Crusades. Of course, in the Old Testament. You know, Joshua had to kill every man, woman, and child in you know what became Palestine to you know right after Moses. So there's a lot of violence there, and I and but there's also a lot of love in the mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly the New Testament. I'm saying this as a Jewish person. In the Quran, uh, there's also a lot of love mentioned and a lot of peace, but there's also a lot of calls for violence. And so just like you can't take the Bible. So literally, is there more encouragement within the Muslim religion to take uh, the the words of the Quran literally? Maybe because it's a more recent document, or what's the story? Are we? Are is this really a fight of religions, or is it a nation fighting? Or what's what's the what is the fight? Uh, you know, that's a it's a it's a really good question. It's something I've I've thought about or thought on for a long time. I th- I think of it, you know, as radical Islam. The reason it has spread in the Middle East is because you have a like a social and political situation that is not very good. If you're, you know, you have these like Saudi Arabia, for example, you know, a royal ruling class, very elite, and then you have this very like the the working population is extremely poor. The working t- conditions aren't very aren't very good. 
So you have a you have that system that exists, right? And it's very similar to when you look at the US and why a lot of people, myself included, join the military. You have young men who are kind of trying to find their way in the world, maybe frustrated, um, and joining the military as a way to kind of like, it's this cause, right? They're like, oh, I'm going to join this and be part of something and, and you know, find my way. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you're a small business owner struggling to get a handle on your taxes, God bless you. I feel for you. I really do. But have no fears. FreshBooks is here to help. FreshBooks is ridiculously simple cloud accounting software that will help you cruise through tax season. It keeps all of your cash flow details in one place so you know exactly what your income is. And their mobile app allows you to take pictures of your receipts and organizes them for later, which makes claiming expenses a total breeze. Gosh, you know what? I'm going to start using this because I need to do this. FreshBooks, I hope you give me a deal. Oh, there is a deal here. So, but first off, I should say you're going to feel completely zen once tax time does come around, which I guess it means you'll feel this inner sense of nirvana about taxes. And then to get started with a 30-day free trial, which is what I'm going to do, go to freshbooks.com forward slash James and enter the code James in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com forward slash James and enter the code James in the how did you hear about us section. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. My podcast engineer, Nathan, you're listening to this right now as you're editing this, I'm sure, loves his Casper mattress. He's been sleeping on one for the past year and a half and said it's the most comfortable mattress he's ever used. I'd asked if he'd buy one again. He said yes, he would definitely buy another Casper mattress if his apartment ever magically created an extra bedroom. He even told me how it helped his wife sleep better. She's had insomnia her entire life, and while a mattress doesn't undo insomnia, Casper has helped her fall asleep and stay asleep more than any other holistic technique she tried. So if you're listening to this and finally thinking about creating a better night's sleep for yourself, try Casper. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash James and using offer code James. Terms and conditions apply. Again, I, I encourage people to read The Killing School because that's your, your latest, but the, the Red Circle, or Red Circle, is, it, is there a the in there? I the, yeah, the Red Circle. <laughs> the Red Circle, uh, which is your memoir, you kind of describe very lucidly how your your father was thrown out of his house at the age of 16. And then when you were 16, almost like history repeated itself, he just essentially or metaphorically threw you off a boat in the South Pacific and you kind of had to find your way. And part of finding your way and, and, you know, at the age of 16, you know, that kind of 
you know, missing parental love or not understanding how parental love works creates this hole that needs to be filled. And I think the military, American military, just like any military in the world, just like just like Al Qaeda yeah. or the jihadists, they're willing to fill the gaping hole of someone who is suffering. Yes. And so that's why I make exactly why I make the comparison. Coming back to the Middle East, you know, you have these these situations where oh, you know, religion is a big part of that culture. They um they find their young frustrated men, they find this religious cause and all of a sudden, you know, they're they can become a martyr, their family gets they know their family's going to get potentially taken care of with with money that martyrs families get. And is that true? Like, is there kind of a, a fund for martyrs? Yeah, I mean, and, and Iran is a big part of that. You know, as a state sponsor of terror, Iran is you know funding f- funding that um, and fueling that conflict in the Middle East, especially with with Israel. And so, you have that situation that exists that creates and radicalizes a lot of young men around the world, and that's why the internet, you know, the advent of the internet, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. But now we're so connected. That's how you can radic. You know, some some kid can get radicalized here, and this, you know, through the internet. Um, so it's so. So I feel like you have these eighteen-year-old jihadists fighting these eighteen-year-old Americans, and they're all killing each other. And you were training them on the American side to be, you know, better killers than the other side. But I'm not equating the two. Like clearly, yeah. we we. I don't, you know, clearly with Afghanistan, they provoked, like they did this amazingly terrifying thing that that rallied the world against against them and Afghanistan. With Iraq, I think, of course, that's become a much more confusing, conflicting issue for many people, um, which we could talk about in a second. But what I'm really wondering is, is this, as some people say, a war against religion or is that propaganda? Because I have no clue. I think um, I think you have people that support, generally that support blindly, I would say, blindly support war in America are very uh, polarized around religion. And, and it's that, you know, that that's whole back to the whole crusades. I mean, you look at the army and these unit patches, they're emulating the crusades that's in the patches. We know that in the army, particularly, if I had to rate the different branches of the military, army is very, very uh, conservative, based in that neoconservative Christianity. And I know of chaplains who are in the Middle East telling members of their units to like that this was literally a holy war in Iraq, and uh, that's you know we've we've reported on a on a few of these stories. Even though Iraq that, again, like in the in the early 90s before Kuwait, you know, I don't want to say Saddam Hussein was an, a nice guy because clearly he wasn't. Just like every, almost every foreign leader in every continent, you know, half of them at least are brutal dictators. But he was the mo- most secular in kind of the hardcore Middle East. Like yeah. you, you women had more rights. Uh, you know, it was just more... Uh, you, it was, you, you would recognize more things there than Saudi Arabia if you were an American. Yeah, I, th- I mean, in hindsight, the second Iraq invasion was a, was a terrible mistake. Um, but it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. The, where we, you know, and it's tough because we've, you know, 
wasted trillions of money, and I say wasted because, and I can I can back that up in Afghanistan, Iraq, and you create this instability and then just pull out and it it makes this vacuum. And so I, I think we should have, I think Obama should have said, look, we've we've done a terrible thing. It was the wrong thing to do, but we have to invest and make sure that we leave Iraq uh, a, a stable country. Um, and I, I just think we failed the Iraq people um, so, so by his- pulling out and leaving a complete, you know, shit show for lack of a better, Wait, and, <laughs> better and, term. And, 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 and I hope and, I can cuss on her. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look how I started. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, and this is not a Democrat or Republican thing. Like you know, Bush started the shit show. Obama had eight years to fix it. Now Trump can, has the potential to fix it. And there's no, I don't know how you fix it. Like Iran is more powerful than ever. I think we've kind of created a, a permanent change situation from the '90s yep. where things might have been in some sort of stasis and. Uh, I don't know if there's a solution. And by the way, I'm not being overly sympathetic to them either. Like they were brutal dictators, violent. You know, all the propaganda on our side was probably largely true. It's just that we never crossed that line before. And, yep. and we just we used their brutality as an excuse to invade. We didn't invade Rwanda, but we invaded Iraq. Like we could yeah. have used the line in many places. Well, and, and then you look at Libya, right? So Libya... Um, Gaddafi largely under control, you know, not, for, you know, when you look at his past, I mean, his, at that period, he was largely, you know, a stable dictator. And we went and kind of supported the, the overthrow of Libya during the Arab Spring. And then getting to our foreign policy strategy, this, and we did a, um, Jack Murphy, the editor of our news site, and I wrote a book on Benghazi because we had saw that we had people coming to us from the State Department, the CIA, saying, "Look, you guys need to get get the facts out." Um, so the situation in in Benghazi now, Benghazi is not the capital of Libya, but it's the it's where the power base is and all the militias are. So that's why we had that consulate. The State Department had a consulate in Libya. The CIA had a base up there. And JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, which controls SEAL Team Six, Delta Force, they had they had a, a presence in Benghazi. So now you have a situation where the CIA is hunting down, um, you know, uranium and and running their program. The State Department's trying to get a handle on the the geopolitical situation, um, and the CIA is recruiting spies. And then you have JSOC executing a kill list that's authorized by Obama and they Who's were on the kill list um, I, I'd have to go back and look but they're essentially killing you know what they think is you know terrorists and and promoters of terrorism the problem was they were executing the kill list and they would kill somebody that was on the CIA's payroll so now these militia guys are like wait a minute you know my you know my my buddy here I knew was working with the, and cooperating with the Americans and JSOC just kicked in his door last night and shot him in the head. So I thought that was all supposed to be coordinated back in with the Department of Homeland Security, like start coordinating the communications between the different factions. Three different, so you have the DOS, Department of State, JSOC, and the CIA all running their own programs, not on the same sheet of music. In some cases, JSOC killing CIA spies, or what they call assets, paid informants. And it creates a bunch of 
anger and confusion with the local militias. They're like, hey, what the hell are these Americans doing? They're, and not only that, it makes it harder for each agency to recruit new assets if they're going to just get killed by other agencies. Yeah, and you know, and you have a career bureaucrat, Patrick Kennedy, running the State Department as Undersecretary of Management, very powerful guy, um, not a very liked uh, guy. He's not uh, the Patrick Kennedy that's the son of Ted Kennedy, is he? He is a Kennedy. I don't know if he's if he's Ted's son or not. Okay. Um, but essentially, you know, Benghazi goes down. I, I lost the best friend of Benghazi, uh, Glenn Doherty, was one of the SEALs. Um, and kind of one of the reasons I wrote the book after the Red Circle, Among Heroes, because um, I lost so many really, really good friends. And, the, and again, that's the, the casualty of war. We've, we've had some really, really bright people um, that we've lost since 9-11. And, and that's the tragedy of this, you know, guys that were, um, you know, incredibly smart um, and gifted and talented. And, you know, even you look at, uh, what was the football player that joined the Rangers? T- Pat Tillman um, gave up a, I think almost $4 million NFL contract to join the Rangers, was killed in Afghanistan. So we just, you know, generations, we've lost a lot of talent uh, in this So. So, so, and uh, generation, you know, I feel like I can, I mean, I feel well read on all the topics. I've obviously, like many Americans, have followed the news since, since day one. I mean, I don't read the newspaper on a daily basis because I, I view the news as just sort of the rough draft of history. <laughs> yeah. But I do feel like books like yours become the second and third drafts of history, and that's where I get my knowledge. And then, yeah. just for my own sake, I, read the translations of the Quran when I, you know, the ones that I think are the most sensible, you know, there's so many out there, you have to kind of pick and choose. And it's so confusing. That's why I ask, I don't know, it's rare I get a chance to talk to someone like you who who might have a more on the ground understanding of the macro issues, but I feel like I could talk to you about that forever. Um, you know, I just kind of leave these questions for maybe the listeners to to start wondering, you know, some of your answers that you've given that have been great, but I do want to get to your career. So, yeah. you know, you you um, obviously went through the, the brutal Navy SEAL training and then the, the brutal sniper training. And actually, and you saw how, you know, it became complacent in the 90s because we weren't really at war with anybody. But then when we really needed it to, to live, you know, you, you made the point that we could no longer use uh, spotters. So that changed the whole, you know, used yeah. to be a sniper would shoot and a spotter would say, well, the wind's going in this direction and here's how much you missed by. But then it became the case that the sniper had to be also do his self-spotting and you recognize that and change the school accordingly. Yeah. Um, so you did a lot of things to kind of take um, the skill of being a sniper to a, a new level, which I think, um, not, to, not to talk too much, but uh, you look at any endeavor that requires peak performance like let's just say tennis yeah every generation the coaches of tennis realize oh, okay now tennis players can no longer look like arthur ash or john McEnroe. they need to start lifting weights so so training reaches a whole new generation and the people in one generation could essentially d- destroy in performance the people from the older generation i feel that's what you did for um kind of this skill set but how did you how did you you know, you get to Afghanistan. What are what are some of the things you you saw and experienced? And you know, let's talk about that a little. Yeah. So, um, you know, the so I was early on a sniper as a new guy. Our platoon of sixteen needed 
they were down two snipers. So our chief one day comes to myself and Glenn Doherty, which is uh, the guy that uh, gave his life in Libya, one of the SEALs, CIA guys, said, hey, you guys are going to go to sniper school. So we were new guys, and new guys didn't get that opportunity. So we were excited but terrified because at the time it was a very high attrition rate. I mean, 30% of the guys washed out. What does that mean? Like, I always hear that like, oh, nine out of 10 people are going to quit. Yeah. Where do they go after they quit? Are they just like fired from the Navy or what <laughs> so, happens? So that course was one of the only ones you could fail and it wasn't really a reputation hit. Because if you were a SEAL and went to school and failed, chances are you'd have a performance review board, your you know, shining gold Navy SEAL pin would be yanked off your chest and you'd get sent back to the regular Navy. That's got to be... Um, which really has happened. Which has happened. It's happened. Guys get cocky, and it's in a it's a lesson that I've written about in all my books. Is like, look, you have to earn that that seal pin every day. It's not something you earn and have and can rest your laurels on. You have to continue to. Today is a new day. The only easy day is yesterday. That's that's a mo- one of our mottos. The only say um, that again. The only the, the only easy day was yesterday. So so and. I don't want to interrupt for a second, but when I hear, I read in the Killing School and in the Red Circle about your training, and I've read it in other books, I've talked to other special forces people, and I look at myself. So I consider myself an extremely disciplined, hardworking person. I've succeeded in my own efforts, but I look at that training. How would someone like me ever even survive half a day of <laughs> like, 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 the first 20 minutes of Navy SEAL training, how would I survive? <laughs> I think it's one of those things you have to be open to it at that time in your life. You have to, This has to be something you really, really want. Um, it's like, I know you, you've you been practicing the, the stand-up comedy. I mean, that's that's a terrifying thing to get up in front of a, a, an audience in that way and, and, and deliver that material and try and get the laugh. So it's just one of, once, if when you're in the mindset, you're like, I just want to do this and I, I think it becomes easier. But... Um, and you mentioned even some like mega athletes, like Olympic level athletes, would just be in tears at the end of the day, and like hundred pound weaklings would be no problem. Yeah, it, what it comes down to, they they run all these crazy tests for the SEAL candidates. They they pull you, you know, they survey you, like what sports did you do, you know, where did you grow up, you know, blah blah blah. And I'm thinking all you have to write is is one questionnaire. Like I could literally determine who's going to, a high degree of probability who's going to make it and who's not. I would say, have you experienced tremendous adversity in your life? Yes, no, and then please describe if yes. Because all the guys that I know that that had no problem making it through SEAL training, which in my class, we had 220 students and we graduated 23 originals. But we had all experienced hardship, whether it's my friend Mike Ritland getting woke up at 4 a.m. to work the farm in Iowa before he goes to school, or myself getting, you know, essentially thrown out of the house, and t- which was a sailboat, a floating home in Tahiti, and finding my way back. So that's, you know, the adversity is, is, uh, is a key component of, of what allows guides to pass and, and be successful, not physical fitness. I mean, you read the Red Circle. I was in terrible shape. Going well, like, through. I feel like I've experienced adversity, and maybe now I'm just thinking of this in the mind of a 49-year-old instead of a 21-year-old, but even at I feel like I'm in better shape now than I was 21. I would not survive the first, like like you said the first thing of the day, and okay, I, I quit, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. No, it's tough. And, and uh, you know, we, there's, a, there's a line in the killing school I talk about 
you know, going through SEAL training and then the advanced SEAL training is like hammering and forging this like hard piece of steel. And then sniper school, which is completely mental and and it's one of the most stressful things I've ever done. It's like you take that that forged steel and you mill it into this precision instrument. Why was that more difficult for you than I don't know, doing a thousand push-ups in eleven minutes or whatever whatever the crazy things you were doing before were. It's just it comes down to you're in a school that has, you know, being a sniper in the SEAL community comes with a tremendous amount of respect. Um, for me as a new guy, I didn't want to go back to my platoon having failed because they were relying on Glenn and I to pass so they could meet the minimum sniper requirement. And so you're under all this pressure. Um, and then they put you in these situations that are incredibly stressful where you'll be lying down, say, at 800 meters, and sometime between now and the next hour, your target will appear 800 meters away. So you have to get on that scope and you know, not just wait for your target to appear. Now you're at 800 yards going, okay, what's the wind doing at my position halfway and at the target, and how do I adjust for that? Um, and there are ways to... Like you don't really like just because the wind is moving one way where you are, the wind might be moving a different direction, eight hundred meters away. So you have to pay attention to all the environmental conditions. And when you get out about a thousand meters, you actually account for the Earth's rotational spin, called the Coriolis effect, which is why airplanes fly in a kind of a curved route from so New York to to the UK. What, what I'm just trying to understand um, technically here. Uh, so that means from 800 meters away, do you kind of like aim a millimeter or two off of what you think? Depending on 800 meters, I wouldn't worry about the Coriolis effect. That's I'm more concerned about more concerned about wind and barometric pressure. Um, and we plug it all into this PDA, and it spits out a, a firing solution for us. But you know, if things change, what do you mean a firing solution? Like it tells you where to aim. The, it tells the you gun? how many minutes of angle to to increase your elevation at your yard line, and depending on it's like flying an airplane. Depending on your barometric pressure, determines relative density. You and know, so, less density. And so you're adjusting that with your arms, right? Can that be automated? So you're putting we the gun have in a, a device. We have a precision scope, so we're actually dialing in mm-hmm. the elevation, dialing in the windage. So back a thousand meters or more, depending on your degree of latitude and your magnetic bearing to the target, the Earth's rotational force could counter out wind. Um, so sometimes you're like, well, the wind is blowing um, right to left. Why am I holding center when, when I should be holding into the wind, but the Earth's rotation may be countering out the wind so you hold center? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all stuff we, we get into and teach these guys. And we put them in these tremendous stressful situation you're expected to just make snap decisions and you have to continue to score 80 percent or higher and, and all the evolutions so it, it's incredibly stressful um, you don't get much sleep you're put under a ton of stress you're learning um, you know all everything about ballistics internal external terminal ballistics um, you know learning these these formulas to hold, Elevation at close, especially in an urban environment like Iraq, where you may dial in a certain range on your gun because you know that your shots maybe the longest shot you have to take in this urban situation would be 600 meters. So you dial in 300 on your scope, and then you're holding up or down depending on the on the range of the target. So it just we put them in these incredible as an instructor put these students in incredibly 
tough situations. They have to make decisions very quickly. And we have a funny saying, the SEALs, like, oh, that guy's would make a good breacher. And the breachers are the guys carrying all these heavy explosives on their back and cutting torches and axes to, to bust through doors. <laughs> and, um, but not a high degree of intelligence to, to bust through, you know, or put explosives on the door. And, and it's like either he's a good breacher or a good sniper. And so and I think, uh, you know, the, the Bradley Cooper playing Chris Kyle in American Sniper sort of refers to that when, yeah. he's, when he's, he's, wa- he's the sniper on the roof and he's watching all the Marines bust down door to door where they're really, you know, taking this enormous risk that there could be a bomb on the other side of the door. And he's like, I'm glad I'm not those guys. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, which is, you know, leading up to my experience as a sniper, you know, I had a lot of helicopter. Uh, airborne sniper experience doing uh, real-world shipboardings at night, uh, enforcing the UN sanctions against Iraq for the oil smugglers. Um, I was on the USS Cole right after it got hit as a sniper, then went to Afghanistan to your earlier question. And most of my, like my operational sniper experience was very different than, say, Chris Kyle's, which is in Iraq, you know, fighting house to house, street to street. My mine was doing actual reconnaissance missions, you know, hiding in the mountains, reporting targets, calling in air assets to eliminate targets to to not expose my position. Um, and that was more of, you know, and that's a, a very valid sniper um, op where we t- send guys in to basically hunt and track. Right, and you, and, you, and you refer to this, it seems like there's two types of uh, training in sniper skill, a school, which is a the gun and all the ballistics that you just mentioned, and all the technology behind it, and shooting and so on. And then there's the what you call stalking, which is essentially how do you move even like five feet, a millimeter at a time, so you're completely undetected. And yep. you know, I never really thought of that as something. I just figured, okay, you guys wear camouflage and you'd be really quiet. <laughs> is there more to it? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's not leaving anything behind. You pack it in, you pack it out, uh, leaving no trace. Um, you know, how you, the shoes that you wear, how you leave trace, you know, not leaving trace behind when, you know, human beings are generally sloppy. Um, in Afghanistan, you know, we were tracking uh, bad guys. They were, they were in fighting positions. We would track them. Uh, find out there where they were like camping out at night, mark the position. Um, and then once we had a clear understanding and it, we've kind of swept this valley and we've identified all the enemy positions, then we would just call in, you know, get on the on the radio and call in an airstrike on all the positions in, in less than two minutes, they'd all be wiped out. So um, you know, that's the kind of sniper missions I was on in Afghanistan. But coming back... They said, "Look, you normally you get to choose your orders. But at this time, we were under this massive reorganization after 9/11, and we stood up this centralized training command. Where before all the training happened at the individual SEAL teams, now we had the central command. And they said, "Hey, we we need your expertise." And and I got placed in uh, advanced sniper training. Uh, so we were working with the the our already existing snipers and training them to operate in helicopter, urban. Uh, rural environments and kind of ramp up their their level of training and then got recruited by a, a guy named Bob Nielsen who was a SEAL Team 6 guy. He said, hey, I want you to come down and help help us redesign the, modernize the sniper program, make it better. 
um, and that's where I finished my my career. Out. So so let's talk about that, and then um, and then I, uh, we'll we'll close with kind of the final stage of your career. But rather than the specific techniques you use to advance uh, the sniper school, although it, you know that's interrelated, what are you? Know, you were basically training people to be peak performers in incredibly high stakes situations. It wasn't just target practice. People were also shooting at them. It's like what Mike Tyson says. You can have all the plans in the world until someone punches you in the face <laughs> and all the plans go out the window, which I'm sure is you know part of dealing with the psychology of being on the ground in a place like Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. Um, so, so you tell this great story about visualization uh, and that kind of led to your philosophy of, of teaching. Maybe describe that, that situation. Yeah, so we got into um, redesigning the course, and we started to look to the best in the world. You know, the Olymp, the gold medalist uh, level, elite athletes. You know, the Tiger who was coaching Tiger Woods, and and seeing what all these peak performers were doing, and you know, currently, like presently, and then we went back in, in time as well, and and we realized visualization was a big part of peak performance. Uh, mental rehearsal, like rehearsing, rehearsing procedures and routines, and also rehearsing to perfection. Because um, when we started to expect students to perform on a perfect level for the first time, they started performing perfectly. Where before, students would ask, "Hey, is it okay? I know eighty percent is the minimum, but what's what's a good score on this test?" And maybe an instructor would say, "Oh, well, if you're shooting ninety, that's pretty good." You know, it's like no, no, no. We'll, we changed our whole uh, thought process. We said we expect you to shoot 100, like a perfect score. Like that is the kind of the gold, the gold or, or platinum level standard. And when we started talking that way to our students and saying that's what we expect, they started performing at that level. Um, and we were teaching them how to visualize for perfection. Visualize that things are going to go wrong, right? Like we all, we all know nothing. Um, like you mentioned earlier, no plan um, survives the first punch usually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we would rehearse that first first punch in the face scenario. What if this happens? What if that happens? And then have the the champion's attitude of um, I don't care if my scope falls off the gun. I'm going to shoot you with iron sights because I have the skill level and the commitment to do that. So, and I I, th I think we've seen. Um, everyone's seen that example in life where we've all had friends or known somebody where they're they're whether it's golfing or doing something skiing, something goes wrong, and it's like oh, the end of the world. Um, the champion's attitude is like, look, if my equipment fails, like I'm gonna either like make make a slingshot <laughs> and get and whack that guy in the head, or I'm just gonna do whatever it takes to win because I know I have the ability. And the commitment to do that, and and you call it uh, mental management, and and you say there's yeah. three rules in mental management. Maybe maybe go over those and how you kind of and how they work, and and how maybe I can apply them in my life, or or someone listening sitting in a cubicle or on a treadmill or whatever, uh, or they're commuting into work. How can they apply these skills to their own issues and problems and areas where they want to perform at a peak level? Well, the the big thing, I mean, and when I look at the the core things we did in the sniper program, you know, we we modernized it so we stopped sketching targets out on pen and paper or pencil and paper, and we taught the guys digital photography. 
satellite communications. Um, you know, that's all the modernization. When we look at what we did to increase the number of graduates, and we took a course that was failing about 30%, um, and when we implemented uh, positive over negative uh, psychology from a teaching point of view, we started um, where we would point out mistakes in the past. We said, no, we're programming these guys as, as beginners with bad habits. So they don't even realize the mistakes they're making. And we're, we're calling them out and putting it in their head. If you're someone telling you not to do something, like, hey, don't strike out before you go up to, to bat, all you're thinking about is striking out. So we changed the way we talk to the students. Is that true? Like if, I, if, if people say, don't screw up, is, are, are you more inclined to screw up than if someone says, do well? I've seen it. I've seen it where I'll literally be on the firing line and I'll say, hey, don't flinch. And the guy will flinch or, you know, hey, don't do this. And it's just like right before they shoot and it's just like they think about it and then, and then it trans, transfers mm-hmm. to behavior. So I've seen it. So, and that has to do with, with the mental management is self-talk. How do we talk to ourselves? If you think of yourself like, oh, I'm, um, like I've always been, pretty good at math, um, maybe not your your level, but... I don't know about that. But I got out and and I started a business and I was like, oh, I, just, I don't want to, like these financial statements, I'm just not good at this. And I started thinking of myself that way. And then I was like, I caught myself and said, wait a minute, I just need to learn the numbers. I need to go take a QuickBooks class and learn, you know, the, the, finance, the finances. It's simple arithmetic, but it's that self-talk. So I was able to correct myself um, and that's what we teach the guys in the sniper school. Like, if you're coming here thinking that you've never been an, you know, that good of a marksman, you need to change that self-talk, and it starts with yourself and and that mental management. So, 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 so let let's say uh, I'm 50 years old. Um, I've been working in one co- big corporation for 30 years. I'm afraid to lose my job. I'm paying for mortgage and kids, and I don't know if I can change or do the things I I always love to do. What would be like a self? So I'm saying to myself every day, I can't do this. Yeah. What would be some self talk that can help me? Um, I would literally. It, it's as simple as saying I can do this and inventing that narrative to support it. You know that that plan and goal and and. But, how, re- but, but every time, every step of the plan, so much comes up negative. Like, oh, you can't do that because you've got to feed the kids at six thirty in the morning, and you have to be home at eight, and blah blah blah. So I would develop solutions for all those problems because that. And it's one of the, the things that I've, um, I've gotten so many great lessons from the military and the SEAL community. And like we weren't, as new guys, we weren't even allowed to complain about a problem unless we brought two or three solutions to the table. That's I, really interesting. So you can't complain. And you, you say this, don't focus on the problem, focus on the solution. Yep. So don't complain about a problem unless you have at least two or three possible solutions. Now, the, I guess the instructor must have might have better solutions, but you still have to come. Pre- you have to show that you've been thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, we've we. I had a a guy, uh, this guy Chuck, in my first platoon. He had this. There's this problem with this weapons mount, and rather than complain, he just like had the armorer machine a new a new mount and create invented this whole new system that was adopted team wide. So it was like rather than just bitch and moan about the the problem and that this thing wasn't working, he invented a solution and it was ended up being adopted um, across the entire uh, SEAL community. So it was always, look, if you're going to, if something is, if you're having a problem with something, whether it's a procedure, um, 
you could bring it up, but you better have a solution. And and, and part of that is that mindset is, is important. Even if the solution's not correct, part of that is just exercising that muscle of creativity, putting yourself in solution creating mode. Yeah. You always, might not come up with the correct solution, but at least it puts you in the mindset that that oh, I'm good enough to maybe think of these things. And when you start doing it over and over and develop a habit, look, nobody lives a perfect life. We all go through ups and downs. But it's how you choose to look at those downs. And, you know, it's like I told, I was reading about your story this week and um, I read one of your pieces on, uh, it was an over 40 piece. Oh, yeah. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of similarities there. I, I got out. I went all in. I invested and in, did pretty well in real estate when I was in the military, just in apartment buildings. And um, I sold everything and put it all into my first business. End up losing everything uh-huh. and like everything I had, plus friends and family <laughs> money. And literally a month later, my wife said, "I want a divorce. Like you put me through hell in the SEAL teams and combat, and now this. Like I've just I want a nine to five guy, <laughs> and you're not that guy." And literally said, oh, by the way, the kids start school in two months. I'm moving up to, to my parents' ranch. And so here I am sitting all alone in this three-bedroom house having to have the conversations with all the neighbors, like, where'd your family go? Were you scared? And, Were you ashamed? Yeah, no, there's a lot of shame. And you know, as a SEAL, it's, you know, it's, it was the first time I really felt like I'd failed uh, at something. How did, you, how did you bounce back from that? I literally... I remember, and, and I didn't want to let go of this project. It was this company and this big real estate training project east of San Diego. We're gonna, we had a race course and shooting ranges, and we're going to you know, let the law enforcement come in and train. And um, It was just an environmental and political nightmare, um, and we ended up, the project ended up dying um, after it was approved by the county, and I just didn't want to let go of it. I remember my friend John, who's a, a partner at uh, a law firm, uh, that I still use today, uh, Shepard Mall, and John said, "Look, you gotta let go, buddy. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this." Oh, you, okay, you, so let me play devil's advocate there. Like, could the positive self-talk, like, oh, "Okay, there's all these problems, but I'm going to keep coming up with solutions." If you do that at too micro a level, it prevents you from stepping back and seeing, "Okay, maybe there's a better solution for my life yeah. than pursuing this smaller project." Yeah, the the big difference is recognizing failure from quitting right and quitting would have been like you know what because when i got out of the navy i wanted to be an entrepreneur my parents were entrepreneurs um you know funny thing they're you know they're both hippies right my dad picked my mom up hitchhiking in malibu and he was a hippie from canada and you know it helped his buddies burn draft cards and and they're looking at me like my mom was like how does my little boy like want to be a navy seal (laughs) what happened What, what went wrong um, so, you know, it's it just, uh, interesting dinner conversations around that, but, um, I forget what the hell were we talking, so, so, you were asking me about. So, so could the positive, oh, the positive yes. be delusional? Yes. Yeah, so same thing. What with I was getting at was, uh, quitting versus failure. So f- it's failure is necessary to be successful. I'm, 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 uh, certain about that. And so look, I recognize, look, I I failed at this. Like this was a failure. I lost all my money. Um, you know, tons of. But on the positive side, I started thinking about. Wait a minute. I learned so much. I raised three point eight million dollars in debt and equity. Learned 
like all these lessons, like know how to read financials, know how to know how to go out and get a business loan to buy a business if I want. So I have all the knowledge. So, you know, I could literally, you know, jump off the bridge right now and 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 be depressed and feel sorry for myself, or I can pull up my socks, realize like this is a this failure is a critical part of my my journey and experience to the next chapter. And so I just said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at it from a positive. What are all the positives that came from this situation? So as opposed um, to being micro and saying, what are the positives that can help me make this situation work? You finally reached the point where you took a step back. And I guess you were forced to do that. Like you knew that it was over. Yeah. And and but and so rather than saying, oh, I mean, maybe you went through this for a little bit, but rather than saying, oh, I can't get off the floor, you you started to reframe the conversation like, okay, I've got to move yeah. forward. Yeah, I've got to. And I I took a job. I took an executive position with a big defense company. It made more money than I ever made in my life. But realized... Were you like a lobbyist or... No, I was a... Um, I was a director of business development for for L3, um, a division of L3, which was an incredible learning experience. I worked with just amazing people. It was an amazing experience, but it was an awesome office job. I was running a classified radio program, um, kind of being a liaison between U.S. Special Operations Command and, the, and our internal engineers, which always were brilliant people, but would come up with all these crazy ideas and want to spend you know, $2 million of internal research and development on a product that I knew that the guys on the ground you know, would end up using as a paperweight. So, so it's very valuable. Um, so yeah, being that guy back and forth. And then what I did also was um, I had contacts at General Atomics. General Atomics and the Blues Brothers were really the um, leading thinkers behind unmanned uh, the unmanned aerial vehicles. The they, Blues Brothers. Yeah. What's that? The I think is Neil and Lyndon Blue at at General Atomics. Oh, privately okay. mass, not the movie. Yeah, not the <laughs> not John Blue. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, different kind of Blues Brothers. The Predator Blues Brothers. So they they invested in the Predator way early on, and the government laughed at them at the time. And then, of course, you know, nine uh, eleven happened, and the Predator blew up. So I was getting L three there. Signals intercept technology in the pipeline to be put on the the predator, which is a you know hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to them. But I was like a cage rat wearing a suit every day. I go on a two week trip, bring back a bunch of great you know great business, and then it's, you know I would come in late at the office and I'm like, hey, where are you? Why aren't you at the office? I'm like, God, I feel like a cage rat. And I was writing, I was blogging as a hobby on the side, and they were okay with that. Yeah, they were okay with it, and you I, probably had top secret clearance at that point. Yeah, I just I had a top secret clearance. I was, you know, I disclosed the blog, and they knew I was trying to sell a book at the time. Marcus Luttrell, who was a friend of mine, wrote Lone Survivor. He encouraged me to write my story because I was writing blogging and writing for magazines, and I got turned down like six, seven times. There at the time, nobody welcome to publishing. Yeah, nobody gave a shit about the seal stuff, right? And then there was a time where if you were a seal, you could write about anything and a publisher would pay you six-figure advance. Um, I got $25,000 and a shot from Mark Resnick at St. Martin's Press. And, you know, the book The book did very well. Uh, L3, because I'd earned it, they gave me a, a sabbatical. And then I launched a small website and that the website took off. I got a bunch of, back when, 
the advertising industry was very different. We got a, a ton of ad revenue first year, and and then I just said, "Look, I'm not coming back." <laughs> so, so, so going. I, I wanna, I wanna finish with that. But going back to sniper school and the yep. the very first thing you talk about with mental management is is visualization. And you give the example of this guy who was a prisoner of war for six years, and every day he would visualize. Uh, himself playing golf. And of course he would visualize he played it perfectly. And then the first day he's released, he goes to a golf course and he scores like 25 points better than, I don't, I don't he know. Shoots, how, I think he shoots par, 18 holes par. Yeah, he shot 74 as opposed to 100 on his very first time back. And they were all amazed because he was like, he hadn't been fed for six years, basically. He hadn't played golf in six years. Yeah, He wasn't a great golf player before, but he had just done so much visualization. And you know, there's... um. Perfect visualization too, because they asked him, "How is this possible?" And he said, "I haven't." He's like, "I I haven't hit a bad shot in four years. I've been playing perfect golf in my head." And so does that work? Because I absolutely that's like there's a book, The Inner Game of Tennis, and there's also The Inner Game of Golf, um, and there's the Zen of Archery. There's all these things say the same thing. Visualization, it's it's huge. I've you know we studied visualization with the gold medalist and um, visualizing those contingencies that happen and how you're going to deal with the contingencies. Um, and so part of what we did at the sniper program uh, to graduate, we started graduating everybody. So we took a 30% failure rate to, to near nearly zero. And it's because we, we changed the way we talked. We started coaching uh, with positive, um, positive teaching versus negative. So rather than focus and point out the mistakes, we would tell the guys, what they need to do correctly. So we're inputting and programming the correct procedures. Then we told the guys how to how to self-talk, you know, how to visualize for perfection and go visualize your performance over and over uh, for perfection, visualize for contingencies, and then how to t- change the way that you talk to yourself because we're we can be our own worst enemies. So it's like almost like a meditation technique in the sense that. Exactly. Uh, pe- people mistakenly have all sorts of mistaken opinions about what what is meditation, but the reality is it's simply sitting there and noticing when you're thinking about something that's off track. And so I guess somebody gets into the habit of like negative self-talk and you have to sort of notice it and then bring yourself back on track. Yeah, absolutely. And the one of the guys we worked with Lanny Basham um has an excellent uh program on mental management. We consulted with him, and his story was: um, Look, I went to the Olympics. I spent all my life dreaming about the Olympics um, as a marksman. First Olympics he went to, um, he was on the bus, and the Russians were talking behind him, like, "Oh, that's Lanny. He's expected to win. Boy, it must be tough in his shoes. Like all the pressure and cameras. And man, I'm sure I'm glad I'm not Lanny." And they were basically like giving him shit, and he's sitting there thinking, "Oh my God, like." all the cameras, like the pressure of the whole US is on me. And that was at a time where it's in a bit of a cold war. And he said he caved under the pressure and still shot silver. But he's like, you only get one shot at the Olympics and, and silver is the first loser, basically. <laughs> and it's, it's a big difference between gold and silver and on the performance spectrum. And so he went back and he went to all these psychologists and he said, what do I do to... to perform and win and and they all tried to make him feel better about losing he's like no no that's not the right approach so he started interviewing all these gold medal athletes and figured out that they had a different mindset and it was like one of his friends shooting at the world championship 
he didn't have a spare gun. The gun broke down. Um, he went to borrow a gun from one of his buddies. And he's like, um, as he picked up the gun, he's like, wouldn't this be a great story if I could tell my grandkids that I won the world championship shooting a borrowed gun because mine broke and I didn't have a backup? He's like, that would be a great story. And he literally went on to do just that. And that's the mindset of a champion. champion. And so, you know, we taught our students how to have a mindset of a champion, how to, how so to self-talk how, how to do yourself. You, how do you have the mindset of a champion? How do you get in? How do you visualize? You visualize, you always take the optimist approach to anything, like adversity. If you, something goes wrong, you're like, how can I turn this into a positive? What, what can I learn from this and how do I uh, turn this into a positive? Because I know and I have the confidence. And the confidence comes from the hard work too. I don't want to get away from that. Like we, these guys put seven, for three months, our snipers put seven days a week, probably 12 to 15 hour days in. And so the, it, you have to work hard. Nothing in life that I've ever achieved has come without the hard work. So, so visualization, although in the case of this golfer, visualization almost replaced hard work, but, but let's leave that aside for a yeah. second. But he, had the, he was already a practiced golfer beforehand. Right. It's very different. Um, so, but the visualization you're saying is key to getting that next few points of performance whether it's at a job or in a relationship or, or which a lot in, is a, a sports. Yeah, I, I I read a lot, like I'm sure you do. And last year, I I read uh, or whenever uh, Tim's book came out. Finally, uh, the Tools of Titans. I was like, you know what? I got to start meditating and really get my morning routine dialed in. And so I started meditating uh, every morning. I put myself through that that Headspace app and. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, this is a lot like mental, like it's what we used to do. It was a form of meditation. And now when I meditate, I'm always applying that positive visualization, like how I want things to turn out in my life, um, how I want to think about, you know, becoming fluent in Spanish, you know, just the way I talk to myself and envision the future, I'm incorporating that. So, into so my like own before meditation. you take Spanish lessons, you might visualize yourself speaking Spanish or going through all the courses. And you know, succeeding at the courses. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanna, um, I wanna get to. I a, I think that's very valuable. I try to do visualization in my own um, different things. Like you mentioned, I'm, I've been trying to get better at at stand up comedy. So I did it Tuesday night, and literally before I went on, I was terrified, and so I just visualized myself going on. I visualized that feeling. I visualized more feeling. Like I felt that bond with the audience and I visualized them laughing. And I, you know, it worked, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm hoping that was part of it and I'll do it again. But I wanted to ask you about something we were talking about um, when we were setting up this podcast the other day. You mentioned like you're you're kind of taking your military experience and granularizing it into every possible potential entrepreneurial outlet. And you mentioned something just fascinating to me <laughs> that's related to other things I'm interested in. You you probably know what I'm talking about. Maybe describe that and then... Uh, Are you talking about the romance? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, I look at, um, from a career point of view, you know, a career to me, rather than like people that go job to job, like a career is something that you, where you can build on your past accomplishments and 
and leverage those accomplishments to something out. That's why you know we've me and my fellow Navy SEAL authors take a lot of criticism because we're being in the, in the public telling our story. Um, but I don't know of any one of my SEAL friends that got out and left Navy SEAL off their resume because it's just it would be stupid to do so. Um, so you know, I looked at when I was blogging for military.com, I said, there's all this interest in the special ops world. Well, I'm going to create a blog to, to deal with this interest, create a friendly environment where people can ask questions and that, that turned into our, our news site. Uh, but we have, you know, today I think I have five, five core websites, uh, our own podcast. We launched a television channel. Uh, we're doing, we're doing our own books and, and then I like to create. I've always been creative. I think we didn't. My parents we didn't watch much TV, and my, you know, we do the movies. And we I read a ton of books. You know, growing up on a sailboat, yeah, with no TV in the middle of nowhere, you read a lot. And and I've always been into like fascinated, like inventing these stories in my head, and being you know now having this digital media publishing company and being able to create stuff like oh I want to do a, a documentary on veterans transition and do it with my friends that. Um, our extreme mountain men and skiers and snowboarders and took them recently to Chamonix and shot this amazing documentary. So I like to create and I love to write as a creative outlet. Um, and But I wanted, I was tired of doing the nonfiction stuff. I think the killing... Right. There's only so many times you can write your memoir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in the killing school, I, you know, I have my reasons for that book. Now I'm shifting more to kind of how do I leverage... Um, into different areas, like I, I taught Kamal, or a mutual friend of ours, how to swim, and I taught him how to overcome his fear of water. And he says you should do a book on fear. So I'm working on that one right now, on how to like overcome your fear. But I, I wanted to do more fiction. I, I'm just wrapping up my first novel. It's a, about a serial killer on an aircraft carrier, based on a real. We had a sexual predator on a. Abraham Lincoln when I was in the oh, Navy. I, you, you mentioned that in, in one of these books. You I think mentioned the Red how they Circle. never caught Never uh, caught him. Yeah. And so I imagine like, what if it was a serial killer on an aircraft carrier, like closed door mystery? Um, but that, so I, you know, being the entrepreneur I am, I hired this MBA, this Chinese MBA student, uh, Zhang, and I'm like, hey, find out the most underserved market in fiction. I like how you mentioned he was Chinese. Just like yeah. that was like a point that... Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I don't know why I mentioned it, but I love I love As opposed Zang. to a Jewish MBA Yeah, yeah. Or... Well, it's, it's just, I think it builds that visual image because Zhang is awesome. And so he comes back and I'm expect, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, because I've always been a huge Star Wars geek and space, you know, sci-fi, sci-fi nerd. And I'm like hoping he comes back with science, sci-fi, and I'm going to write, you know, about the modern day or the the futuristic you know navy seals you know space space warrior warriors and all this crazy stuff um and he's like military romance <laughs> and he had all the data to back it up what kind of data like what did he see he looked at sales um figures so you how, saw that military romance that the, the few military romances that are out there were blown through the roof yeah, compared to other genres not enough to meet the market demand that romance as a genre was the most stable during up or down uh, markets. He just, I was overwhelmingly like the data supported military romance. And then I was like, oh man, I started thinking about, I've been getting harassed for the past two, three years by these legitimate romance authors, women on Facebook and Twitter 
would send me direct messages and say, hey, I'm working on this proposal. Can you tell me about Navy SEAL training? I'm working on this proposal. Can you tell me about what deployment is like? Can you tell me like the male-female mix, like this and that? And I'm like, they're pimping me for information. And, and I would, you know, out of respect, author to author, I'd start sharing with some of them. And then they would send me like another follow-up with like 100 questions. I'm like, hey, that's abusive at this point. Like, stop. Yeah. Um, and it dawned on me, wow, they're all trying to jump into it, but none of them know what the hell they're talking about. They can, they're, they're good writers, but they don't have the knowledge to create that, that fictional world of military romance. And so I said, you know what? I want to create a romance series and work with a, work with a writing partner and direct this romance series. And so I sold a three-book deal to St. Martin's Press. I showed him the report. Can you, is it okay? Can you say the economics of the deal? Um, I, I mean, I got, what do you like, the dollars and cents? Yeah. It wasn't a huge advance. I think we got 30000 for three books, but I got a, a bigger percentage. I'm big on profit sharing now. And now like I, I heard you discuss and we're out um, the other day about the publishing platforms. I'm, we're to the point now where we have a big enough audience on my digital media we're going to be our own publisher starting next year. So we're going to start publishing our own books. Good. Um, but this to me was an experiment. And I said, look, I don't need a big advance. I, I would rather take a bigger royalty percentage um, and own audio. I'm a big fan of owning audio rights. Um, I have the audio to Killing School and the and the Red Circle. And um, audio, St. Martin's Press offered me like five grand for audio rights. Forget and, it. You can make that in one month on the camera. Yeah, school. after the, they came to me and said, whoops, we recorded your audiobook. I'll, I'll just tell you, like, Choose Yourself, which came out four years ago. I have, of course, all the audio rights. Just last month, I got a check for $6,000. Yeah. So, and this is four years later. So, audio rights is the gift that keeps giving. Yeah. And I, my agent at the time, not my agent now, thought I was crazy because they ended up offering, I think, 15 grand. And the Red Circle audio. Uh, same thing. I would just got to check it for eight grand last month. It just keeps on giving, and so that's and, a fascinating um, way to come up with um, a genre idea and then execute it uh, almost like a product management team would, as opposed to saying, "Okay, well now I'm going to figure out the romance genre and be literary about it and write it." Like you kind of left the romance part to the experts. You'll do the military part. You figured out the place you needed to be to maximize revenues and now you created that and I, I think that's a, a a good management skill to have as well and and I see you doing that across the board with your many um, businesses and efforts under one umbrella of kind of leveraging your your you know vast experience as a sniper or a seal you know in the armed forces and everything I do want to um, take a moment to once again say people should definitely get the killing school. I read it. It's a page turner, but also paired with the Red Circle, which is your memoir. I think they yeah. they kind of go hand in hand, and and I think it gives a really good understanding of of what you did to create these peak performers, as well as what's happening on the ground there, and and what are the the pros and cons of what's happening. Um, I think it's important an important piece to kind of read the story of the guys that have been there on the ground and been put in these situations, and and been out and had a chance to reflect. Because uh, I think you know, I get I get this bias all the time living in New York. They automatically think I'm a certain way because I served in the military. I'm like, look, actually, 
you know, I did vote for Obama. I do have a lot of liberal, um, liberal views. I, one of the things that bothered me most about coming back from Afghanistan was understanding the whole Guantanamo Bay situation. And, you know, I'm a, I'm Canadian American. I was born in Canada, came to the U.S. and, you know, very, very much embraced the, uh, the American way of life. Um, but coming back and seeing that we had like stripped, you know, civil liberties away from human beings, regardless if they're bad or not. And we found out now in hindsight that a lot of the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay were, were improperly mm. imprisoned and, and stripped of their basic civil liberties. And that's not what I was over there fighting for as a SEAL. Like I was fighting for that American way of life that we're fair, we treat everybody with due process. And to see like an environment like Gitmo exist, which is just completely opposite of what I think American values should stand for, that was very disheartening as a combat veteran. And so I think where where I surprise people all the time in New York and in conversations is I I catch them stereotyping me and and uh being very biased. I think that's um, an important lesson in our, and, I, and I'll close with this. Um, I think that's an important lesson in, in particularly in this last election, like regardless of your political beliefs, it doesn't have to be half the country versus the other half of the country. I think, and this is a, almost a cliche at this point, but there is important to understand the subtleties and the gray areas and, and all the issues as opposed to just making a judgment. Yeah, I had a quick, quick story. Um, my good friend of mine, John Bush, owns a bunch of bars and restaurants in the city. Just opened a new bar, has a lot of like musician investors. Uh, Fat Mike, the lead singer of NoFX, a punk band, was sitting down with John at the restaurant. We were, we were having beers and having John introduce me. And he kind of like, oh, you're a Navy SEAL military guy. Kind of gave me that look. I'm like, oh, here we go again, you know, because I've, I've seen it all over. It's weird. It's like the, the bias and discrimination <laughs> in this city towards military guys is crazy. And he looked at me, he's like, oh, I bet you voted for Trump, didn't you? And I'm like, really? Like right out of the gate? And I said, and actually I'm, you know, I split my time between Puerto Rico and, and New York. I'm technically a resident of Puerto Rico. And so I couldn't vote. Like Puerto Rico doesn't have an electoral vote. And he's like, well, who would have you voted for? And I was like, I don't know. Like, are we really going to get into this? And he's like, you're, I bet you would have voted for Trump and you're just one of those Trump assholes. And I'm like, really? I was like, Mike, you are exactly the problem that we have in this country in this past election is you're so polarized with your view that you're not willing to sit down and learn my story, who I am, what are my experiences, what are my opinions, and even if they differ from yours, being able to have a dialogue. I like the dialogue is the problem that, that what's missing today is that we're quick to just, we, we want to simplify things and say, we're right, you're wrong. Um, but nobody's willing to kind of have that dialogue. Yeah, imagine if James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, you know, just said, oh, you're one of those uh, Democrat Republicans instead of writing the Federalist Papers, which, you know, informed how we interpret the Constitution. Like there was a tradition of dialogue in the United States, which has kind of uh, been lost recently. But um, again, uh, Brandon Webb, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks it's for having been so me. So informative in so many ways, and the Killing School inside the world's deadliest sniper program is your your latest 
best-selling book. And thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I got to have you on our podcast. Now. Excellent. I look forward to yeah. it. I'm not special forces. And we're, I'm taking I you up for. Oh yeah, <laughs> we're, gonna go a, too, we're gonna go flying. We're gonna go flying. I'm upside down. To do that. Yeah, upside down. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. Probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.